Alex, thanks Michelle. Y'all can have a seat. Uh, welcome to Trinity Church this morning. Thank you so much for being with us here. Um, if you've never seen me before, my name is Tom. I, for a while, had the privilege of being a pastor here. Um, and I'm very thankful to DJ and to Dave for letting me back in the building after I cut out to Charlotte. So it's very good to be back with everybody this morning. Uh, if you did not get a listening guide, please throw your hand up now and somebody from the back will make sure you get one so you can follow along with the sermon and take some good notes. Uh, today marks the second Sunday of Advent, as Alex mentioned, which is a remarkable time. It's the most wonderful time of the year, as we're reminded by Andy Williams. It is remarkable for so many reasons, uh, not the least of which is the fact that it's not just recognized by Christians. It is a time, unlike any in the calendar, where even the secular world, which doesn't believe any of the things that we've been talking about and singing about this morning, they're putting up lights and decorating trees, and they play music that every once in a while mentions the very same truths that we as Christians hold dear. It's a time of year that offers us a lot, we know that, but it also asks us a lot. Asks adults and kids to believe some pretty remarkable things. It asks kids to believe that an overweight old man can squeeze down a few billion chimneys with presents that, that somehow are handmade to look exactly like the ones on sale at Walmart, to do that all over the world, all in one night, while being propelled through the air, air by eight tiny northern creatures. It asks a lot of adults as well. It asks us to believe that if we can just spend enough money, if we can get just the right gift, get the lights hung just the right way, watch just the right Christmas movie with just the right amount of sugar in our bloodstreams, that Christmas can indeed feel like it did when we were children. Sometimes it's an even bigger ask. Christmas asks us to believe that if we can, we can somehow just get past the feeling of grief over the loss of a loved one, or the pain of sickness or disease or heartache that threatens to rob us of the joy that we know we're supposed to be feeling this time of year. And believing this, believing that Christmas can actually make some kind of a difference in our lives, in the real world, well, that just seems like too much to ask. Fortunately, as we see in the Gospel of Matthew, the first Christmas took place very much in the real world. It took place in the lives of people who don't show up in Hallmark movies. It shows us that they had problems as serious and as dire as anything that we come across in our lives. And into this mess and uncertainty, God steps down to do something that will touch not just their lives, but the lives of everyone everywhere in all of human history. And in response to this amazing intervention by God, the Apostle Matthew calls us this morning to believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 18 through 25. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one on the seat nearby. Matthew chapter 1 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she gave birth to a son, 
and she called and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the chance to look at what for many of us is a familiar text of scripture. And Lord, we always run the risk, even as your redeemed people, of coming to your word with comfortable and complacent and apathetic hearts. But Father, just as you stepped down into history to revolutionize the lives of these people, of your people Israel, and of all people everywhere through your word, through your word made flesh, Lord, may we see this morning that this word has that power, has the power to do that in our lives and our hearts. And let us wait with eager expectation as we unpack what you have said to us, Father. Give us ears to listen, eyes to hear. And Lord, give me the words that you would have me speak. And hide me behind your hand and let me speak no word which is not true. We ask these things by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ, your Son. Amen. Before we begin to unpack Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we need to set the scene. And if you were with us last week, we saw that Jesus is the culmination of God's plan from Abraham to David through the exile and the return to the promised land. And this puts the events in these verses here in the very early ADs, probably sometime around AD 7 or so. I know what you're thinking. Isn't AD, doesn't that mean the year of our Lord, so shouldn't this be in year zero? Well, you would, you would think so. Um, but unfortunately, the early scholars who set year zero, we think probably made some mistakes. And this is probably, they're probably off by a few years. So this is probably about AD 7 or so. Uh, tough time for Israel. Remember back in the Daniel series that Israel has come back from exile and then they immediately go through occupation by the Seleucid Empire. They're under the reign of this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And this is all long past now, but things aren't really a whole lot better. The last attempt to restore Israel's sovereignty failed about 50 years prior and now they are a Roman province with a puppet king. Things are relatively peaceful compared to Antiochus's reign, but it's still a far cry from the dynasty that God promised the house of King David, the dynasty that the people are still longing for. And moreover, as we saw during the Daniel series, there was a 400-year period of silence between the death of the last prophet, Malachi, and the coming of John the Baptist, who's going to show up a little bit later. God hasn't sent a prophet in this time. He's not abandoned his people by any means, but he's not speaking to them in the way that they had become accustomed to. Occupation, loss of sovereignty, silence from God. In other words, it is a dark time when God chooses to step down into history and do this. And, and we read those words in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 and 2 a few minutes ago that capture this perfectly. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the land of Israel. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. What God has in store for his people is going to be like a bright light suddenly shining in the darkness of their circumstances. For those of us this morning who feel as though we might need a light to shine in our circumstances, for those of us who fear that God has gone silent, is perhaps no longer interested in our lives, let's lean in to hear what God has to say. And from Matthew 1, 18 through 25, we will hear four reasons for us to believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God. First, in verses 18 to 19, we have the example of Joseph's character. Verse 18 says that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Spoiler alert! Matthew doesn't let the tension build at all. He does not let us as readers wonder what's going on here. Who is this story about? He leads with the big reveal. It's all about Jesus. 
If you've not gone and watched the new trailer for Avengers 4 by now, go ahead and do that after the sermon, of course. Um, But it doesn't give away the story at all. We have no idea what's going to happen in April when this movie finally comes out. But Matthew doesn't do that to us. Matthew doesn't bury the hype. Matthew lets it just just completely rise. Matthew tells us from the get-go, there's no mystery about who the story is about. It's going to be about Jesus. And though there will be tension in this story, as we will see, there's no tension about who it is about. It is about Jesus. Verse 18 goes on to say that his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. And, And just to provide some context here, the word betrothed in our culture is kind of an old-fashioned way of saying two people are engaged to be married. It implies something serious, something hopefully well thought out, but by no means as, as intentional, as binding as it was in first century, century Israel. It's still something relatively casual and tentative in our culture. When a man and a woman in our culture get engaged... Either one of them can break it off really at any time with with nothing more lost than a few months of planning and the cost of an engagement ring. But in Joseph and Mary's day, betrothal involved a formal ceremony, going before witnesses, exchanging vows, after which you were considered to basically be married. Now, you didn't live together right away. You didn't enjoy all of the privileges of marriage right away. There's about a one-year waiting period where you are husband and wife in name, but not formally sharing a household or a bed together. It's a serious thing in this culture to be betrothed. It is so serious, in fact, that as we will see, to break off a betrothal requires a certificate of divorce because you are essentially thought to already be married. That is why in verse 19, Joseph is called Mary's husband, even though they are not yet living together. It is a serious commitment that's taken place, even more serious than someone in our culture asking another to marry them because they've gone through the whole ceremony already. They're past the point of no return. They are bound together in every way short of sharing a house and a bed. And it is with that emotional, psychological, and spiritual commitment already made that Joseph learns the devastating news that Mary is pregnant. Before they came together, the text says, she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. During the betrothal, before they are sharing a bed together, she is found to be pregnant. Now, this comment that she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit, that is Matthew giving it to us as the readers. That is for our benefit because, as we will see in Joseph's reaction, he clearly is not acquainted with this fact. Mary knows this, but he does not. And and as an aside, don't let anyone ever tell you that the Bible is written for gullible, pre-modern, pre-scientific people. Joseph is no fool. Joseph knows where babies come from. And though there are supposedly all sorts of parallels between this and other so-called virgin birth stories, that's really just a lot of wishful thinking on the part of skeptical scholars— Joseph knows that virgin births don't happen. Joseph knows that if you want to have a baby, you need two people to do certain things together. And we see that in his reaction in verse 19. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. We see two aspects of Joseph's character in tension, pulling against each other. First, he's a just man. He reads what has happened, and he puts two and two together, at least in his own mind, and concludes that Mary, his betrothed, essentially already his wife, has been unfaithful, has committed infidelity. She has played the harlot with some other man and gotten pregnant from it, and Joseph is rightly incensed. He's not like so many in our own day who recognize no sexual taboos whatsoever other than the lack of consent. Our our culture says that as long as two consenting adults are doing something, it can't possibly be wrong. And if one adult has made a promise to another adult that they will be sexually intimate only with them, but then somebody else comes along that they like better, well, they shouldn't have made that goofy, old-fashioned promise in the first place, our culture says. 
But Joseph is not like that. Joseph recognizes the sanctity and holiness of marriage. Joseph recognizes that God has prohibited adultery in Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments, because God hates it, because God invented sex and sexuality, because God knows better than his human creatures how sex and sexuality are supposed to work. He lets his creatures know that the only safe place for sex is within the confines of marriage. Sex is like fire. It is a good thing when used in the right way with proper care. The same fire that you can use to cook food on or protect yourself can cause untold devastation when left unchecked. If you've seen the photos of California's wildfires, you know what I'm talking about. The Bible is not anti-sex. God is not anti-sex. God just cares a lot more about it than our culture does. And he commands it to be used in a proper way, not in a casual way. Joseph gets this. He's a just man. He takes the just and righteous view of the matter as he sees it. But he doesn't stop there. The verse goes on to say that he was unwilling to put Mary to shame and resolve to divorce her quietly. Joseph's response to Mary is, and her apparent adultery is a just one. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. But it's also a kind one. That's the second aspect of his character that we see here in tension, his kindness and his compassion. Why do I say that? Well, consider that under Old Testament law, under Deuteronomy 2, or 22, 23, and 24, a person caught in adultery could be punished by stoning to death. It's not clear that that was still being done in Joseph's day. But there's no indication here that his first reaction is, let me get Mary punished. Let me make sure Mary pays for what she has done. Moreover, he doesn't even seek to bring her to public shame or rebuke over her sin. He won't countenance the sin. He's going to do something about it. He won't marry her. He will put her away quietly, the King James says but he will do it quietly with as much concern for her dignity as possible. He is righteous, but he is also kind. He shows both character traits. He has no tolerance for sin, but he has no vindictive desire to use Mary's sin as an excuse to treat her badly. He's not looking to avenge his own hurt feelings, his own hurt pride. He acts in a way that takes seriously God's view of sin, but also shows love and kindness for this woman. Even though he has concluded that she has cheated on him. Joseph loves the Lord. He loves his word. And that love causes him to act in kindness and in justice. Let's ask ourselves this morning, are our lives characterized by kindness and by justice? If God has shown us love in Christ Jesus, if God has transformed our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit, we will show both. We will show justice and kindness alike. We will not have one without the other. There is a view within philosophy called the transcendental unity of the goods. And it's a fancy way of saying that you can't have one without the other. You cannot ultimately separate the things which are good because they are bound together ultimately in the character of God. That's why in the old song it says, Dad was told by mother you can't have one without the other. That's why in Galatians 5, it speaks of one fruit of the Holy Spirit, but then it delineates that in multiple virtues that are all supposed to be connected together. If our lives have been transformed by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, we won't just have justice, we won't just have kindness, we will have them both. A glorious, multifaceted fruit of the Holy Spirit. Do you have both in your life? Are you acting in justice and in righteousness? Do you stop before you act to ask whether something you're about to do might be pleasing or displeasing to the Lord? When you're confronted with the sin of others, is it your first instinct to make light of it, to avoid offending that person? Brothers and sisters, we can never be kinder or more loving than God, and God never 
ever, ever turns a blind eye to sin. Every sin that has ever been committed will be dealt with, either in the cross for those of us who believe or in the fires of hell for those who do not. And our response to sin, whether it is our own or the sins of others, can never be to take it lightly because God never takes sin lightly. We need to respond to sin in a way that is both just and righteous, but in a way that is also kind. Seeing sin as sin does not mean we rush to condemn the sinner. If we find ourselves in sin, the kindest the, the best way we can show self-care is to go and repent of that sin, to fall on our knees before God, to ask him for fresh grace and mercy so that sin will not get a foothold in our hearts. And if we see sin in others, we shouldn't say, that's no big deal. No, we should genuinely from the heart forgive that person. We should take in ourselves the pain of letting go of our resentment against that person. Just as Jesus Christ took the pain of our sins, of our forgiveness on himself when he died on the cross for us. Consider this week. Where have you failed to act justly and call sin, sin? Where have you failed to act kindly by forgiving the sins of those who have wronged you but then turned from those sins? Let the justice and kindness in your character reflect the justice and kindness that you have been shown by God in Christ Jesus. That's what Joseph is trying to do here. He is trying to live out this justice and kindness in his resolution to quietly divorce Mary. But he is kept from acting on incomplete information and making the wrong decision for the situation by the arrival of an unexpected visitor. And this is where we find our second reason to believe God's promises and obey his commands. The angel's message in verse 20. We're told that Joseph is still considering these things when he is interrupted by an angelic messenger. And in our age of short attention spans and snap judgments, let this be an example to us that we will rarely regret taking the time to consider the matter before choosing how to respond. Delayed reactions are almost always superior to snap judgments. The next time you see something you disagree with on social media, or a friend, a family member, a spouse says or does something that irks you, let me commend to you again the example of Joseph. Take time. Pause, consider these things before reacting. We will seldom make a worse decision for having done so. And it is in pausing to consider the matter before reacting that Joseph is able to get the right of the situation. Verse 20 continues, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, you may be here this morning and you would consider yourself a skeptic. And you may be wondering, do people who use electric lights really believe in angels? Well, I would submit to you that the lights in this room are, in fact, on. And I and the pastors of this church believe this text to be relaying genuine events. So somehow or other, you can make that move. And I and the pastors in this church do so, having gone to college, having heard Hume's argument against miracles and Kant's division of the noumenal world from the phenomenal world, and we just don't think that these thinkers, or any other thinkers for that matter, give us a reason to dismiss the existence of such beings and the possibility that from time to time we might interact with them. If that's a stumbling block for you, if that's an issue for you, I would love to talk to you afterwards or talk to Dave. We'd love to hear about those objections and talk through them with you. But as I don't know of a reason or an argument to dismiss this text, I'm going to continue to take it at its face value and move ahead. This angel says to Joseph that he is a son of David. That's how he addresses him. And if you were here last week, you know the significance of David. But if you weren't, let me catch you up. He is the second king of Israel 
handpicked by God, which you can read about in First and Second Samuel and in First Chronicles as well. And not only is he king, but he receives one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. In Second Samuel 7, when God promises him an everlasting dynasty, a perpetual kingship, that he will have one of his thrones, one of his sons, to sit on his throne forever. And remember that what we said at the beginning, Israel does not have their own sovereignty right now. They are a Roman province under a puppet king named Herod. They are not enjoying this long-awaited Davidic dynasty right now. So when Joseph is called by the angel, the son of David, he is, he's not just calling attention to his, his family tree, but he is reminding Joseph of God's unbreakable promises. And he's giving him a hint that these promises are about to be fulfilled in Joseph's life. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, writes, The predictions of the prophets were in effect brought forward by the angel to prepare the mind of Joseph for receiving the present favor. The angel continues, that Joseph should not fear to take Mary as his wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And suddenly Joseph is caught up to where we are as the audience. We've known since verse 18 that this child is from the Holy Spirit. And Mary, if you read Luke's gospel in chapter 1, has known this even since before she became pregnant, though she presumably never told Joseph. But he knows now. This is, this is some dream. This is already some dream. Joseph is confronted with an angelic messenger during a time when God is not speaking to his people in this way. And the angel tells him on God's behalf that Joseph's biggest anxiety and fear in that moment is gone. Mary is not an adulteress. He doesn't have to divorce her. They can keep their betrothal. After all, the wedding is still on. But there's more. She's still pregnant. And by the most extraordinary means imaginable, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is why I don't think an angel being involved is really at the list of things that we have to be puzzled by in this text. Actually, it, it's pretty far down the list because this text demands that the universe not just be a brute given, but that it have a beginning and it have a creator and not just a creator who winds up the universe like a cosmic watch and then walks away like the God of deism, but a God who is actively involved in his creation, a God, yes, who causes his creation to run in a lawful orderly, normal fashion, but who occasionally interrupts that lawful order to bring about something extraordinary, what we call a miracle. And, and this is why the typical arguments levied against miracles don't need to trouble us. The typical argument against miracles is that they can't happen because they would be a violation of the laws of nature. But nobody is claiming that the virgin birth is an operation of the normal laws of nature or that it happens in the lawful course of things. It is the result of an extraordinary historical action by a personal God to bring about something that is unusual, that does not happen in the normal course of things. God has chosen to do something amazing in bringing this child into the world. Now, we should stop and ask, why did he feel the need to do this? Why did Jesus have to be born of a virgin? Much about the incarnation is indeed a mystery to us. But if Jesus could have a human mother, it ought to raise the question in us, why did he not have a human father too? What was wrong with that? Some have speculated that this is so that Jesus would be born without sin. And as Christians, we certainly believe that Jesus was without sin. That's very clear from Scripture. But some speculate that this was, it was necessary for him to not have a human father for this to be so, that, that somehow sin transmits from Adam down the male line but not the female. Or you could go with the view of an earlier age that Christians held that, that sex is just somehow dirty and sinful by its very nature. 
And so anyone conceived by that was automatically going to be sinful because they, they were conceived by sin in the act. But there is really no scriptural support of any kind that I know of for either of these positions. And I think we're just best off going with what another angel says, Gabriel, over in Luke chapter 135, where we read this, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We're simply told that the miraculous conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit was necessary for him to be called Holy, the Son of God. There's nothing there about fathers making their kids sinners or sex being dirty, but it does say that the unique divine Son of God had to be conceived as a human being through unique divine action. And all of this comes as a shock to Joseph. His circumstances are suddenly reversed from facing the prospect of divorce and losing his beloved Mary to suddenly being told that his bride is pregnant with a child of divine origin. The whole course of his life is changed in an instant because of the words of the angel, which are really the words of God Almighty in whose place this angel was speaking. I wonder if we see the word of God as having this kind of power. I know this to be a church that places a high priority on God's word, on preaching and studying the Bible. But I also know that if your heart is anything like mine, it is easy to become apathetic and complacent even to great gospel preaching, to have lower and lower expectations of what the Word of God can do in your life on a given day and in the lives of those around you. But the Bible, the living and active Word of God, has the power to completely transform your life each and every time you open it up. And, and sometimes the worse you feel, the less inclined you are to read it, the, the more prepared you are for it to do its work on you if only out of sheer desperation. You can come to the Word of God groggy, sleep-deprived, low on energy, high on discouragement. But then you begin to read, and you're like the cursed King Theoden in The Lord of the Rings, who feels the evil spell begin to break and his strength return as his fingers close around the handle of his sword. Do we live like the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God has that kind of power. And, and what would it look like if we did? Do you schedule your time every day like the Word of God has this kind of power? Do you go to bed early? And then do you wake up early with a sense of anticipation because you're going to hear the voice of God in the pages of Scripture? Do you sit down and just skim through your daily readings? Or do you make time to meditate upon what you have read so that it sinks into your heart and you let the word of God hammer away at those footholds of sin? And then do you confine your time in God's word to a few minutes once throughout the day? Or do you find ways to bring it up to your mind throughout the day? Do you turn to the scriptures after you have a bad call, a bad class, a bad interaction at work or with your kids or your spouse? When you need to unplug, to chill, to relax, to cool off, do you turn to the Psalms or do you turn to Netflix and Sports Center? What about in your conversation with others? Essentially, in every conversation we have with others, we make an argument in the, in the formal sense. We offer an opinion, a conclusion, and then we offer premises, reasons for why we hold that, usually in the form of our experience, things we've gone through, things we've read, things we've heard. When is the last time you offered your opinion on something and you backed it up with Scripture? Not as a trump card, not as a way to look superior to somebody, not in a way to win the argument, but in a gracious and loving way to encourage, teach, rebuke, correct, and train that person in the righteousness of God. Nothing 
in your life has the power to change everything in your life and the lives of those around you like the Word of God. When you hear it, believe it, and act on its promises by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Joseph heard the Word of God. It had that kind of effect. In an instant, his and Mary's lives are completely, radically transformed by the angel's message. But more is coming. Their lives will be even more radically transformed by this. The third reason we have to believe God's promises and obey his commands, the child's identity in verses 21 through 23. The angel continues, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Notice that Joseph is among the first people in history, before the advent of the ultrasound, to know a child's gender before they were born. It's pretty cool. But it's small potatoes compared to the name the angel commands for this child, and even more so the meaning behind that name. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's two very prominent Joshuas. There's the military leader and titular character of the sixth book of the Bible. There's also a high priest mentioned in Zechariah chapter 3 in a very prominent prophecy. So just from those references alone, the name has got a little, bit of, a little bit of heft, a little bit of weight, if you will. But names in the Bible, especially when there is a naming ceremony like this, have special significance and meaning. Joshua means Savior. And the angel indicates this Jesus will more than live up to his name. He will save his people from their sins. And this is the very heart of the gospel, which makes this the very heart of Christmas, that Jesus came to deal with the sins of the human race. He had to do it because, Romans 3.23 tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came to deal with the problem of humanity. We've just come through an election cycle. And we're living in what most agree are pretty divided times for us as a country. It used to be that we could all agree on the problems to be solved and then just fight with one another about, what, about how to solve those problems. But now we have to first fight about whether the problems are really problems. But as important as problems like immigration, abortion, gun control, economic inequality, and racial tensions are, at the root of each and every one of these problems is the same problem of human sin. And Jesus comes to deal with that. He comes to deal with the root of all human misery and grief and sorrow and anguish and sadness and death. But it gets even better than that because things are actually so much worse than that. Malachi 4, 1 says this, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. Essentially, because of sin, people are like dead plants and God's wrath is coming like an oven that's going to scorch them to a crisp. Sin isn't just a problem between human beings and other human beings. It is a problem between the entire human race and the God who created us. And because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, because we have all been rebels and taken up arms against our king, his wrath hangs over each and every one of us to burn us up like stubble, Malachi says. And the only hope that any of us has is that God will somehow make a way of rescue for us. In the Old Testament, Israel offered sacrifices, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple, designed to atone for sins, but always in a temporary way, and always in a way that looked forward to the day when God would deal with sins fully and finally. 
And the angel is telling Joseph that that day is here. That God, the party offended by our sin, the only one who can take the pain of forgiveness upon himself, is going to do it through a baby that will be born to Joseph and Mary. And yet there's more. There's more because God is up to so much more than just letting his people off the hook for sin. You see, back in Genesis 1 and 2, when God first creates the world, we see him dwelling among people, among Adam and Eve. And after sin drives people away from God, the whole Old Testament foreshadows the day when God will come and dwell among his people again. After the captivity in Egypt, when they're going through the wilderness, we see God leading his people like a cloud, like a fiery burning cloud, leading them through the wilderness. Then when the tabernacle is set up, again when the temple is set up, God comes down in a cloud and fills those places with his glory. But there's always the hope of more. There's always the promise of more. And that is what the angel is getting at in verses 22 and 23, that the birth of this child will fulfill that longing and expectation for God to at last dwell among his people again. The virgin will conceive and give birth, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew was quoting Isaiah chapter 7 here, which you can go and read this afternoon. A prophecy given from Isaiah to a wicked Judean king, Ahaz, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. A promise that even though Ahaz at that time was leading God's people astray, that his actions would not ultimately break the promise of God to King David, that God will indeed dwell among his people again, and that David will be their king. And the angel was saying that now, at long last, that is coming true. God is coming to dwell with his people in the person of this baby, this Jesus. And this baby will be able to save God's people from their sins. He will be able to bring the dwelling place of God to be among people again because he will literally be God in the flesh. Now, there's all sorts of debate about what this promise meant in its original context. Is, is Matthew doing justice to Isaiah 7? Or is Matthew hijacking Isaiah 7 to serve his own religious purposes? Well, I, I don't think it's the, the latter for a couple of reasons. And then the first is this, that although Isaiah and Matthew are written by different people and, and actually written by them, using their voice, their personality, their writing style, they weren't hypnotized by God, they weren't turned into human dictation machines, the one who ultimately wrote both books is God. And so it is God who best understands what is going on in Isaiah 7, not us. Now, at the same time, that doesn't mean that Isaiah is only talking about Christ in Isaiah 7, because we can read this word fulfill here in Matthew and read it very, very woodenly. Like, if I tell DJ I'm going to meet him at Starbucks tomorrow at 8, and, and then I go and meet him at Starbucks at 8, I have fulfilled my promise in a very straightforward and literal way. But the New Testament authors don't, don't always think this way. And sometimes they use the word fulfill to mean that a specific event promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New. It, it literally happens because it has been predicted that way. But sometimes they mean that a type or a pattern in the Old Testament finds its antitype or its true instance in the New Testament. And it's debated what is happening here. Is Isaiah only talking about the birth of Christ? Or is the promise made to Ahaz a type and the, and the birth of Christ from a virgin is the anti-type? That's debated. But either way, Matthew is saying that it is here now in the birth of Christ that Isaiah's prophecy is ultimately and truly fulfilled. And that means that God is dealing with his people's sins. 
God is dwelling among his people again. And he's doing it by getting a body, by becoming a baby, the baby who will be named Jesus growing in Mary's womb. And if you have not yet come to know this Jesus as your Savior, let me invite you this morning to turn from your sins and place your faith and trust in him. The baby promised to Joseph, born in Mary, grew up to become the man who lived the perfect life that we could not live and died the perfect death that we deserve to die, plunging himself into the fiery furnace of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. And he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death and proving that he is the Son of God and the only one who can save us from the penalty that our sins deserve. And at Advent especially, we remember that he didn't just come the one time, but he promised to come back again. We look back to the first coming at Advent, but we also look forward to the second coming, when he will come, not as a baby, but as the glorified God-man, to put all things right. I invite you this morning, place your faith and trust in him. And if you have questions, if you have doubts, that's great. Because it means that you're thinking. It means that you're letting this unsettle you. Talk to me. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to one of the pastors here. And we would love to talk through those things with you. For the rest of us, Ask yourself, do you make the connection between the Jesus of Christmas and the Jesus of Easter? Nobody loves the sentimentality and nostalgia of Christmas more than I do. But as you sing the familiar words of the familiar carols, O come, let us adore him, glory to the newborn king, do you remember that the baby who would lie in the manger is the man who would hang beaten and bloody on the cross for your sins and mine. Keep that in mind as you celebrate Christmas this year. Marvel. Marvel at the beauty and wonder of the incarnation, at the glorious condescension of God to become a human being, the beauty and wonder of God keeping his promise to live among us again. But keep in mind, too, that what begins at Bethlehem concludes at the empty tomb. And to that end, per perhaps consider expanding your Christmas carol repertoire this year. Listen to some choirs. Listen to some old carols. Listen to the choir of King's College, Cambridge. Listen to the word of carols like the infant king. Hush. Do not wake the infant king. Soon comes the cross, the nails, the piercing, then in the grave at last reposing. Hush, do not stir the infant king, dreaming of Easter, gladsome morning, conquering death, its bondage breaking. And if you think all this talk of death at Christmas is a downer, don't. Because Christmas is ultimately about the death of Christ, in which death itself died, so that we who believe don't have to die but can have eternal life. Take pains this Christmas to remind yourself of who Jesus is, of the identity of this child spoken of to Joseph. There can be no doubt that the angel's message was received loud and clear. We see this reflected immediately in this, our final reason to believe the promises of God and obey the commands of God, the example of Joseph's obedience in verses 24 and 25. The text says that Joseph woke up and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Simple and straightforward. We complicate the Christian life so often, but the Christian life is very simple. We read the commands of God, and we obey them, not in a legalistic way, not trying to earn favor or blessings from God, not trying to earn our salvation. God has given us those things already in Christ, given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey his word, 
and we obey. We obey from a glad, thankful heart, a heart that constantly puts off idols like self and status and approval and security and comfort, but we obey. We obey. We read the word and we do what it says. It's that simple. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, we're not just commanded to do good works, we are set up to do them. They are ready for us to do them, and we are ready to be doing them. We don't lack preparation, we don't lack readiness, we simply lack obedience. Joseph is set up to do good works, and then some. He is told precisely by this angel what he ought to be doing, but he did not lack obedience. That is the difference. And if we merely obeyed as well as we know to obey, this world would be a far different place. If the two billion people on this planet who claim to be Christians obeyed as far as they knew to, imagine the difference that would make made all the difference in the world for Joseph and Mary. Joseph got up and he took Mary as his wife. Does it it mean he did it that day? We know from Luke 2 that at the time that Jesus was actually born, they are still betrothed. But it is immediately clear that he turned from his intent to divorce her quietly and instead intended to complete the betrothal and marry her. Verse 25 would fit with that Lucan timeline. It states that Joseph knew her not, that is, he did not know her sexually until after she had given birth to a son. So that that would fit with them completing the betrothal period, Jesus being born, and then them entering fully into marriage. And we can't go into full detail here, but I do think verse 25 rules out the Roman Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary. It doesn't come right out and say it, but it seems to imply that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had a normal, healthy marriage that included sexual relations. And that would explain the presence of Jesus' brothers later in the Gospels far more easily than the hypothesis that they are Joseph's children from an earlier marriage. And to me, this is another measure of Joseph's faith and obedience. He, he goes from believing that Mary has been unfaithful to him and intending to divorce her to taking her as his wife and apparently having a normal marriage with her. And we are told that when actual infidelity occurs between a married couple and then by God's grace there is repentance and reconciliation, one of the areas that is the hardest to heal is the sexual part of the marriage. And so it speaks to Joseph's faith and obedience that he, on God's word, puts aside his suspicions of infidelity, and and he and Mary go on to have a normal, healthy marriage. And finally, the naming of the baby speaks to Joseph's faith and obedience as well. Joseph names him Jesus, just as the angel commanded. He, He doesn't name him after a relative. Go back and read the genealogy. There's no Joshua mentioned or Jesus in that genealogy. He doesn't go with a cool name he read in a book. No, no, he submits to the word of God. And I think this means that he submitted to God's word in his whole relationship to Jesus as his adopted father. We know almost nothing about that relationship. Scripture is silent. But I think this suggests that Joseph never forgot who Jesus' true father was. Joseph, no doubt, loved Jesus, but he never got beyond himself. He never forgot that he was caring for the Son of God, the one who would save God's people from their sins. Do faith and obedience like Joseph's characterize your life? Are you obeying the word of God insofar as you understand it? Or do you find yourself making excuses, even feigning ignorance of what God might have you do in a given area? Mike Tyson famously said, everybody's got a plan till they get punched in the face. And I think we Christians can be guilty of having this view of obedience. 
We read that God wants us to live at peace with others, but then someone says something that irks us, and it all goes out the window because we, we reason God could not possibly have foreseen that living peaceably with others would require us to keep our mouths shut once in a while. He could not possibly have known that when he gave that command. Or we read that we should flee sexual immorality, that the man who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. But then an attractive woman crosses our path, and we suddenly wonder, is that really what Jesus meant? This church takes a high view of the Bible. But speaking for myself, I am never more critical or skeptical about the commands of God's word when it tells me that I can't do what I want. What about you? When is the last time you obeyed in a way that made you say, ouch, that cost you something, that that meant that you didn't get what you wanted, or you had to give up something that you did want? When is the last time you overlooked a slight in order to live peacefully with a brother or sister in Christ? When is the last time you stepped out of your comfort zone to show love to someone who looks or acts differently from you? When is the last time you had a hard conversation with a brother or sister and called out sin for what it was? As Christians, our obedience is grounded in Jesus, grounded in the one who faced the full gamut of temptation and suffered under death so that we could be free from sin and death and live lives of holiness before him. And our obedience cannot just be a plan that lasts till it gets painful. We must obey as Christ did, trusting in God's promises by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, no matter what it costs us. The pivotal battle of the Civil War was fought over three days, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in 1863, just outside a fly-speck town in Pennsylvania called Gettysburg. And after three days of murderous combats, Between the Federals under George Meade and the Rebels under Robert E. Lee, the Federal Army stood victorious. And the Rebels, having lost a third of their forces, began to retreat the morning of July the 4th. Now, Meade's orders were not to to defend the small, insignificant town of Gettysburg. His orders were not even to fight a major battle. No, his orders were to destroy the Rebel Army under the warlord Lee, and bring an end to the Civil War. Already having dragged on it into its third year, already the bloodiest war in American history, but unfortunately Meade failed to obey his orders. Content with what he had accomplished, he failed to pursue the retreating rebels and thus let the greatest opportunity he would ever have to end the conflict and cease the bloodletting pass him by. The war would drag on for two more years, Costs thousands more lives. And all of this inaction, this disobedience, caused Abraham Lincoln, the commander-in-chief, in a letter that he ultimately never sent to me to write these words in frustration. I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to close upon him would have ended the war. We have our orders from our commander. And the good works in keeping with the gospel are within our grasp to do. And we can scarcely imagine the glories that we have let slip away through past disobedience and what God will yet do if we will trust and obey. Let us follow our orders to the last, believing the promises of our God and obeying his commands. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you as the God who speaks. We thank you and praise you as the God who is with us. Because what was told to Joseph happened. We thank you, God, that you are the God whose promises we can trust and whose word we must obey. And Lord, we repent 
of times we have disobeyed your word, the times, Father, that we have ignored your word, broken your commandments, the things that we have let slip by because we would not obey. And Father God, we, we look now with eager expectation to your word at what you might have for us, even just this week, even just today, Father. And Lord, we ask that you would, God, fill us with your spirit, help us to obey, trusting in the promises that you have made in your word, Father. And we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.